You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. For such a young nation, Canada has more than its share of ghosts. Pretty much anywhere you go in this vast country, some sort of apparition haunts the living, peeking out the windows of the oldest hotel in town, walking the dark halls of an empty house on the shady side of the street, even wandering the wilderness, a doomed echo of a long-abandoned mining town or lumber camp. And those are just the human spirits. Ghost ships sail haunted waters off the maritime coast, and phantom trains glide eerily along the moonlit prairies. Tonight, you'll hear the story of one of those phantom trains, and how some believe it served as a warning of an impending and deadly disaster. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, the classic legend of an Alberta ghost train and the dark omen it carried for the men who encountered it. It's in the vein of classic prairie ghost stories, but it has connections to real-world people and events, along with elements of fate, forerunners, and fortune-telling. This is the story of the Phantom Train of Medicine Hat. The Union Club of British Columbia is like something out of an old mystery novel. Located down a quiet side street just to the north of the world-famous Empress Hotel, its Neo-Georgian facade suits its surroundings, all brick and pillars, arched windows, and restrained ornamentation. Inside, a visitor is overwhelmed with rich mahogany paneling and a towering 20-foot ceiling that's accented with bright and beautiful stained-glass skylights. It's all very Victorian, both in the sense of the city where it's located, Victoria, B.C., and in the sense of the era. It's the kind of place where the wealthy and influential, clad in business suits, fitted jackets, and turtlenecks, sip first-growth Bordeaux beneath elegant chandeliers, surrounded by a lot of wood, leather, and high-backed chairs. It's exactly what you'd expect from a club founded, in part, by an enterprising lieutenant governor and the province's first chief justice. But when a Vancouver newspaper reporter strolled through the Grand Lobby sometime in the 1930s, it wasn't to meet any politician, judge, or CEO. Rather, he was here to meet the club's stationary engineer, an old hoghead, as he called himself, a former railway engineer who had spent most of his life running trains in and out of southeastern Alberta. After a long and distinguished career, the engineer, Mr. Gus Day, had retired to the west coast of Canada, the veritable end of the line. And he had a ghost story to share. It was a story from his early days on the railway, a story he had been waiting to tell for a long time, and, as it turned out, one that would become an oft-repeated, iconic addition to Canadian folklore. As Mr. Day told his story, the reporter found himself transported back in time, smelling the smoke and feeling the heat of the train's firebox, hearing the sound of the wheels clicking on the tracks below. He was there now, alongside Gus Day, back in 1908, 
when the sun was near setting on the age of steam. They had just cleared the river when Gus stepped back from the firebox and wiped his brow. It was barely June, but it felt like midsummer. The sky was clear, a field of stars, but the humidity was almost unbearable. Heavy, tight, nearly suffocating. It mixed with his sweat and made his skin itch. Though it was close to midnight, the air was still warm and so thick that the embers seemed to get stuck in it, hovering there like fireflies caught in a web. He tossed a few more shovels of coal into the furnace and glanced at the man beside him. If Bob Toohey was feeling the heat, he didn't show it. But then standing at the controls was surely less punishing than shoveling a fire. Not that Gus minded, really. Black hands, a crooked back, and a soaked shirt were all part of the job as a railroad fireman. They were part of the dues you had to pay on your way up to engineer. Toohey had already paid his. He had even helped Gus prepare for his exams, and Gus was grateful for it. Standing there in the midnight heat, among the smoke and the steam, he knew that his days shoveling coal would be behind him soon enough. He was ready to be an engineer. It was just a matter of time before a vacant position would give him his chance. Until then, he enjoyed his time working the Crow, the name for this particular train heading west to the Crow's Nest Pass. The city of Medicine Hat sits within a gently sloping valley at a river bend in eastern Alberta. At the time, a single length of track climbed steadily along a series of cut banks from the valley floor to the prairie table above, eventually connecting to the CPR mainline at the village of Dunmore. Whether you were coming in or out of the hat, your train would travel this lonely line, and you would hope that the operator had done his job, that two trains, one inbound and one outbound, weren't riding the rails at the same time. Gus and Tui reached the first of the cut banks, and Gus stoked the fire again. Tui blew the whistle, and they swung to the right and then the left along the curves. Feeling the oppressive heat again, Gus stuck his head out the gangway to catch a breeze and spotted a glimmering light in the darkness up ahead, as big as a wagon wheel. A faint, flickering red glow played on the plume of steam billowing above it. His face turned white. They were seconds away from colliding with an oncoming train. Gus yelled at Tui to stop, then ran to the gangway and got ready to jump. Tui's hand shot for the brake valve, but stopped in midair. His jaw dropped. The oncoming train had suddenly split from the track, the only line of track, and glided through the air along their right side. The men watched in shock as the coach rocked by. Its spectral crew waved a greeting as it blew a mournful, hollow whistle, rounded the curve, and disappeared. The men said nothing. They continued in silence to Dunmore and beyond. By the time Gus and Tui returned to Medicine Hat, it was in the light of a new day. A week later, Gus had taken a new assignment as the fireman for a day train with a longer haul and higher pay. This train, the Spokane Flyer, would run light from the hat in the morning just after the crow came in. It would then couple with cars waiting in Dunmore before heading out on a round trip through Washington State. The metal machine baked in the sun, and Gus could feel the heat radiating from the brown hills around him. 
but he was thankful for the clear horizons of a sunny day. His previous encounter with the Phantom Train had been alarming and certainly memorable, but it wasn't enough to make him stay home. The same, however, couldn't be said for Tui. A short time after their encounter, the two men ran into each other on the streets of Medicine Hat. After a few pleasantries about the weather, their wives, and their work, Tui leaned in close and said, Did you see that train? Now, if you ask an engineer or a fireman whether he saw something as open-ended as that train, you might as well ask a section worker if he saw that track or that rail tie. But Gus knew exactly which train Tui was asking about. He could still hear the ghostly whistle. Hard to miss, Gus said. Tui nodded. I can't stop thinking about it, he said. I went to a reader, a woman here in town. She reads palms and tea leaves and the like. She says death will get me before the first of the month. I've got a wife and kids, Gus. I can't. He stopped and swallowed, then risked a glance over his shoulder as if death might be listening. He turned back and his voice hardened. I'm going to fool the old man. I'm going to lay off these next few weeks. You should too. Whatever's coming, he won't get me. Tui squeezed Gus's shoulder and sauntered away. The end of the month came and went, and death didn't show. It was now the first week of July. The hazy memory of the phantom train began to fade in the summer sun, and Gus was beginning to doubt that he had seen anything at all. He had considered Tui's advice to stay off the rails and avoid disaster, but decided to keep his shift on the flyer. Gus was the kind of person who didn't have much time for superstition, and besides, a man looking to make engineer by Christmas wouldn't get very far staying home. In the weeks that followed, Gus made dozens of trips to Dunmore, but the Phantom never showed. Thinking that the danger had passed, Tui was now back on the schedule, assigned once again to the Crow. The fortune teller's grave prediction proved false, and it seemed that Bob Tui's plan had worked. He had somehow managed to fool death and escape his fate. Or so he thought. On July 6th, Gus and the engineer of the flyer, Jim Nicholson, were once again chugging their way up the hill to Dunmore Junction. They had just cleared the first cut bank when a bright light appeared on the horizon. Gus and Jim could see a thick plume of steam rising from the pops. Gus called out to Nicholson to hold her and got ready to jump. Just as Bob Toohey had done on that hot night in June, Nicholson reached for the brake, but suddenly stopped as both men watched the phantom train breeze past them on non-existent tracks. Once again, the crew waved and the whistle blew before it vanished out of sight, and once again, neither man said a word. This was the second time Gus laid eyes on the phantom train, first with Bob Toohey, and now with Jim Nicholson, both times at this exact stretch of track. What did it mean? Gus didn't have to wait long to find out. Two days later, on a bright Thursday morning, Gus was getting ready for his usual shift on the flyer when he was assigned to yard duty, covering the shift of another man. A fireman named Thompson took his place, setting off with Nicholson just after dawn. A short time later, Thompson came running along the tracks back to the yard. 
He was covered in soot and char and sweat and nursing a badly scalded arm. He brought grave news. The Spokane Flyer had collided with the Crow passenger train on a single stretch of track just outside Medicine Hat. The same stretch of track, give or take 100 yards, where Gus, Tui, and Nicholson had encountered the Phantom train. The collision had turned both engines into twisted piles of metal and left seven people dead, including Nicholson, the engineer of the flyer, and Bob Tui, the newly returned engineer of the Crow. It seemed that death hadn't been fooled after all, but merely delayed. Despite Tui's best efforts to elude his fate, the Phantom's omen had been fulfilled. The reporter set down his notepad. This wasn't just any old ghost story about some random, unnamed phantom train. He remembered that day, now a lifetime ago. He was working as a CPR telegraph operator in Calgary when the report came across the wire. It became front-page news. Awful railway wreck this morning, declared the Medicine Hat News, its headline set in a thick black frame with letters as tall as the masthead. A smaller subhead summed up the story. Head-on collision a mile east of the city this morning between Crow Train and the engine for Spokane Flyer. Several men killed and a number injured in accident. Further down the page, a survey of the damage came in telegraphic bursts. Engines and cars are smashed to matchwood. Marvel that anyone escaped. Worst catastrophe in this part of the West. Medicine Hat Homes are sorely afflicted. The morning of the crash was chaos, but more details came as time went on. A homesteader named Hinksman had seen it happen and tried in vain to stop it. He was just about to cross the track when he saw both trains approaching, neither engineer able to see beyond the curve ahead. He waved his arms frantically in an attempt to warn them of the danger and later testified that Bob Tui acknowledged the warning and threw his engine into reverse, but it was too late. The doomed engineer appeared at the cab door the same moment the engines collided. The wreck was cloaked in steam and smoke. One of the engine's boilers had been torn clean off. The Crow's express and baggage cars had been partly telescoped, instantly killing the baggagemen, and had rolled into the ditch alongside the tourist car. The flyer's locomotive had been pulverized into twisted scrap. Survivors had pulled Engineer Nicholson and Fireman Gray from the wreckage, only to find they had died on impact. The Crow's engineer, Robert Tuey, and a conductor named Mallet were rushed to hospital but died of their injuries that afternoon. A total of seven men lost their lives that day. All but one left wives and children behind. Sixty passengers were sent to hospital with burns and broken bones, but most escaped relatively unharmed. The survivors on the Crow owed their lives, in part, to seemingly random fortune. Two cars full of fruit were coupled immediately behind the Crow's engine, and they absorbed much of the blow. The Edmonton Journal exclaimed, How anyone came out of the pile of wreckage is a wonder. And the Lethbridge Daily Herald declared the disaster to be, quote, one of the most serious in the history of the Canadian Pacific Railway in Western Canada, end quote. As the tracks were cleared and the bodies buried, one question remained. How could this have happened? 
The Flyer and the Crow should have passed each other at Dunmore Junction, but Tui was running two hours behind schedule. He shot straight through Dunmore, unaware that death was rushing to meet him. The inquest found that operator H.B. Ritchie had failed to warn Nicholson that Tui was running late and that the crow had not yet arrived. Had Ritchie mentioned this on his clearance or if Nicholson had checked before departing, the accident would have been avoided. While Nicholson would pay with his life, Ritchie would never answer for his mistake. Just a few hours after word of the collision reached Medicine Hat, the coward skipped town. He was last spotted heading south for the U.S. border and was never seen or heard from again. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the phantom train wasn't mentioned at the inquest. Nothing about a ghostly apparition or prophesied death ever appeared in any newspaper before the 1930s. If Gus Day had shared his story with anyone before his interview with this reporter, it had been insulated, perhaps becoming a midnight legend of the rail yard, a story to keep young engineers awake and alert, their eyes fixed on the track ahead, scanning the dark horizon for a glimmer of the phantom's light. Now, three decades later, Day had come forward with his story, prompted by an article he read in The Locomotive Engineer, an industry newspaper, about a ghost train that had been spotted in Colorado. Day's story would go on to be published in the Vancouver Province newspaper, and while it found a new audience in the homes and businesses of British Columbia, it wouldn't become a true legend for another three decades. Legends are often tied to the land in some way, and the phantom train of Medicine Hat is no different. Readers of the Vancouver province likely enjoyed Gus's story, but it didn't really stick with them. It was disconnected from its place of origin, from the prairie sun, the short grass, and the cutbanks of the South Saskatchewan River. Most people in BC had never even seen Medicine Hat or the surrounding countryside. They hadn't grown up in a railroad town, and few had any cultural memory of catastrophic train wrecks that would send entire communities reeling. To truly gain a place in the lore and legends of the land, the phantom train would have to leave the coast and return home to Alberta. Andy Stasco was a pioneer railroad man, just like Gus Day, and as an old hoghead, he had also spent much of his younger years running trains in and out of southeastern Alberta. After a lifetime working as an engineer, he retired to the city of Lethbridge, Alberta, where he became a vital contributor to the local museum. It was there, in the mid-1960s, that reporter and author Ken Little visited Andy to hear the tale of Alberta's phantom train. It isn't clear whether Andy had heard the story while working as an engineer or had simply read Gus Day's account. Andy would have been 17 years old in the summer of 1908 and working as a wiper, the bottom rung on the ladder to the engineer's seat. Certainly the right time and place to hear the lore firsthand. However he heard it, Stasco's story was essentially the same as what Day had shared years earlier, with a few minor exceptions. My favorite is a small addition to the Phantom's description. Little's article mentions the wagon wheel-sized headlight, the reflection of the firebox, and the ghostly crew members who waved as they passed. But it also notes that the coach windows were lit. It's a small addition, but a powerful one giving a ghostly presence not just to the crew, 
but to the passengers riding in coach. Andy Stasco's story, as reported by Ken Little, would end up in numerous Albertan newspapers and in the pages of Little's 1966 book, All Take the Train, a collection of railroad anecdotes and folklore. To Little's readers, The Phantom Train of Medicine Hat was a true, homegrown ghost story, made special by its ties to a real place, real people, and a real historical event. The Phantom Train had come home, and soon the story spread. Today, over a century after Robert Toohey, James Nicholson, and five others met their end on the slopes of Medicine Hat, the story is slowly becoming a legend. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it's easy to forget that Little's article, so often referenced as an original source, is in fact a fourth-generation narrative. Little heard the story from Stasco. Stasco likely got the story from the Vancouver Province article published three decades earlier. That article was based on Gus Day's original story, told three decades after the crash. That's a span of 60 years. Details are slipping. Dates are shifting. Small details are added or omitted depending on who's telling the story. Gus Day was the only person who claimed to have seen the Phantom Train and lived to tell the tale, but some insist that others came forth to corroborate his story. According to one anonymous account found in a book titled Sentimental Journey by Ted Ferguson, after Day's story was published in the Vancouver province, quote, other old-timers came forward to verify that Nicholson and Tui had told them about it and that the two engineers were so honest they believed them, end quote. This could be true, but I haven't been able to find anything that supports this claim. What seems to happen to all legends is happening here. The lines between historical fact, fiction, and the original story are starting to blur. Now, my favorite example of this can be found in a 64-page document prepared by the city of Medicine Hat that outlines various candidates for potential street names. It's a list of hundreds of surnames, each accompanied by a short description of who these people were and what their names might mean to the community. In this list of public servants, upstanding citizens, and community board members, two stand out from the rest, Nicholson on page 42 and Tui on page 59. Both share the following description. CPR engineer, killed by the Phantom Train of 1908. Killed by the Phantom Train. Not killed by the very real, well-documented train wreck of 1908, but by a phantom. Now, I know this is probably just a mistake, the way a city clerk recorded a submission but it's a small and fascinating fact that, because of this document, it's now technically a matter of public record that Bob Toohey and Jim Nicholson were killed by a legend. With this wording, their deaths weren't just foretold by the Phantom Train. They were fated. Here's another example of the blurring line between fact and fiction. In 2017, True West magazine posted to their website an article titled Alberta's Ghost Train. In it, award-winning journalist Jana Bombersbach compares what she says are two different versions of the same story. Story A, she writes, is a, quote, pretty detailed account of a spooky story that began in May of 1908, end quote. 
written by a mysterious author named S.E. Schlosser. Story B is Ken Little's article from 1966 that I mentioned earlier. In her article, Bomberzbach seems confused by story elements that she finds conflicting and doubtful about whether the tale is authentic folklore or a complete work of fiction. She writes, quote, Some list this story under Canadian folklore. Others think it's scary, but fake, end quote. In story A, she notes, author S.E. Schlosser, writing in the first person, claims that they were the firemen who worked with engineers Tui and Nicholson and that they are the sole living person to have seen the phantom train. Story B says that role belongs instead to Gus Day. In Story A, the author and narrator, Schlosser, describes how they saw ghostly passengers stare at them through the windows. Story B makes no mention of passengers, but says that a phantom crew waved both times as the train glided by. Finally, the article notes that while both stories tell us that Engineer Tui took some time off, only Story B, with Gus Day as the fireman, mentions that Bob Tui visited a fortune teller. Bombersbach muses, quote, Here's the thing. Everyone agrees on the ending. It's the story leading up to the ending that is so freaky and so in dispute, end quote. But you know, that's not the thing. That's not even close to being the thing. This is very important. This story isn't in dispute. Had Miss Bombersbach done even a tiny bit of research, she would have learned that story A isn't a first-hand account at all. The person who wrote it, S.E. Schlosser, is not an old train engineer sharing a personal anecdote from 100 years ago. Instead, she is the successful author of books known as The Spooky Series and the webmaster of AmericanFolklore.net. S.E. Schlosser makes her living retelling classic American and Canadian folklore. She simply took the story of Gus Day and retold it with a first-person perspective and a little artistic flair. Now, it's fair to say that Miss Schlosser could put a little more effort into providing the exact source of the story she claims to be retelling, but it's also the job of anyone writing an article or podcast to do a little research before claiming that a century-old story is somehow in dispute. Regardless, Bomber's Box article serves as an interesting modern example of how, over time, one simple story can become a little hazy, and how retellings without references can turn a simple anecdote into a disputed piece of folklore. Now for the most pressing question. Is this a true story? Is it true that Gus Day saw, or at least thought he saw, a phantom train? Or was it an old man's tall tale, a homespun yarn, tied to historical facts, but an exercise in historical fiction, inspired by a similar story from Colorado? We'll never know for sure. The only other alleged witnesses died in the crash, and as far as I know, no one else has claimed to have seen the phantom train since 1908. But let's say for the sake of argument that Mr. Day was telling the truth, that he and Tui and Nicholson all saw something. What did they see? Andy Stasco, the retired engineer from Lethbridge, had a theory. In 1971, in the October 13th edition of the Calgary Herald and the October 18th edition of the Edmonton Journal, Little writes, quote, Mr. Stasco says that under certain atmospheric conditions at night, 
it was not unusual for the engine to be reflected from the steam. And the reflection could be so lifelike, said Mr. Stasco, the first time a man saw it, he had the daylights scared out of him. It's easy to imagine, isn't it? A warm spring night in the valley, clear sky, high humidity. The air starts to cool and condense. Fog forms over the river and up the cut banks. It's possible that the phantom that Day, Tui, and Nicholson had seen rushing toward them was in actuality just their own reflection. The round headlight in the orange glow of their firebox playing off the distant fog. The train passing alongside them, the ghostly crew waving hello, all of it just a trick of light and shadow, helped along by the right atmospheric conditions and a bit of imagination. Stasco was a retired engineer. He spoke from experience, and his theory is very plausible. But it's not very exciting, is it? We can certainly accept the idea that Gus Day, still a young man and not yet an engineer in 1908, fell for an optical illusion. The crash that happened a month later was nothing more than a tragic coincidence. Now, that's probably right, but just for fun, let's explore the ghost story a little further. First, let's talk a little bit more about what the train symbolizes in the story. Gus Day tells us that, after his encounter with the Phantom Train, engineer Bob Toohey immediately sought the insight of a fortune teller living in Medicine Hat. He was told that the Phantom Train was a sign that he would die within the month. The prediction was off by a week, but spiritualism is rarely an exact science, so it tends to get a little more leeway. This eerie coincidence has led to the common belief that the seer had some foreknowledge of the collision. In the March 29th, 2000 edition of the Medicine Hat News, a headline declares, quote, Great train crash of 08 predicted by fortune teller. But that's not entirely accurate. The fortune teller never said anything about a train collision. They merely predicted Tui's untimely death. And even though Bob Tui received this dire news from what Gus Day called a reader, it's doubtful that they needed any tea leaves, tarot cards, or crystal balls to make such a prediction. In fact, it's likely that Tui could have consulted any old-timer familiar with folklore and received the same prediction. Folklorist Helen Creighton called them forerunners, personal encounters with supernatural signs that warn us of an impending death. They can be as simple as a knock on the door, hearing an owl hoot during the day, or hearing the clock chime 13 times at midnight. But they can also be much more dramatic, like seeing a doppelganger, your spectral double, or any other kind of ghostly apparition. A side note here, to learn more about Forerunners, listen to the Fireside Canada episode titled The Thing of Annapolis County. Now, according to folk wisdom at the time, to see a ghostly apparition, a forerunner, was to know that death was close at hand. This means that when Bob Toohey saw the phantom train, he already had one foot in the grave, and there was no avoiding his fate. That covers the meaning of the vision, but we're still left with a question that is rarely tackled in the retellings. The story is very clear that Gus Day saw not a premonition, but a phantom. A ghost, in this case likely an echo of the past, warning of the future. But if it was a specter from the past rather than a vision of the future, 
To which train did this ghost belong? Though the people of Medicine Hat were certainly saddened by the news of the great crash of 1908, they probably weren't very surprised. That's because a similar wreck happened not even two years earlier along that same solitary track between Medicine Hat and Dunmore Junction. When engines 1306 and 1401 collided in September of 1906, the event was declared, quote, the most disastrous railroad accident for years on that division of the CPR, end quote, and it left at least three people dead. The descriptions of the scene are eerily similar to the wreck of 1908 and include telescoped cars and scrapped locomotives. And, just like the wreck of 1908, it was found that the man working as operator was to blame. He also deserted his post and disappeared before news of the crash reached the station. Perhaps the phantom train that day, Tui and Nicholson had encountered, was the ghost of engine 1306, still chugging its way to Medicine Hat. An echo of the past that provided a terrifying glimpse into the unavoidable future. Trains have become a symbol in Canada of community and connectivity, of civilization, expansion, and freedom. But they can also bring a feeling of separation and solitude as they move through the rough and remote terrain of some of the nation's most isolated landscapes. They are dichotomous machines. They carry a certain sense of romance and mystique, but they're also haunted by a darkness, a certain sadness that rolls with them along the tracks like a ghost. And that can be heard in the long, lonely wails of their whistles as they pass through our cities and towns in the middle of the night. This story reminds us of that darkness. The Phantom Train of Medicine Hat has become an important part of prairie folklore, and it's still going strong today. It's told and retold in newspapers across the province, in museums and in books, blogs, and collections of tales of the supernatural. The story has a way of sticking in your head, not entirely because of the phantom train itself, but because the sight of it had serious ramifications for the witnesses. The fortune teller's warning, Bob Toohey's futile attempt to escape disaster, and the subsequent crash makes us feel fearful and uneasy because, ultimately, it's the story about the inevitability of death. The writer E.B. White once wrote, Railroad trains are such magnificent objects, we commonly mistake them for destiny. It seems that, in their encounter with the Phantom Train, engineers Tui and Nicholson came face to face, not with destiny, but with cruel and unflinching fate. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember to always watch the horizon. You never know what might be coming around the bend. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Ryan Clark. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can support me through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.